Today's show is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code UNIVERSE at checkout to get 10% off. And by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial today at audible.com slash universe. It's a good thing the British laborers digging a new dock in Liverpool in 1844 enjoyed their beer so much. If they hadn't, there's no telling when Neptune's biggest moon would have been discovered. It's an established fact that the laborers did love their beer. A fair-sized man could go through 8 to 12 pints in a single workday, and those pints were awfully easy to get. They were served up free of charge, right on site, the better to prevent any of the men from nipping out to a pub when a thirst struck. That may not have been terribly good for workplace safety, but it was great for keeping the project on schedule. But the beer that came free to the workers did not come free to the city managers who were serving it to them. It came from William Lassell, a local merchant who had grown wealthy in the brewery industry, and serving the needs of the dock project made him wealthier still. That gave Lassell a chance to pursue his real love, astronomy. With his 1844 windfall, he built a new telescope he'd long been imagining a 24-inch reflector that he mounted on a clever pivot which moved with the rotation of the Earth. That kept his telescopic eye focused on a fixed point in space. It was in 1846, shortly after the dock project was finished, and only 17 days after the Berlin Observatory discovered the planet Neptune, that Lassell pointed his new telescope skyward to see the celebrated planet that was causing all the stir. He saw Neptune, all right. The giant 31,000-mile-wide world was hard to miss once you knew where to look. But just to the side of it, Lassell saw another, fainter point of light. It could have been a star, but he knew it wasn't. It was too faint, it hugged the planet too closely, and it moved very fast shifting over to the other side of Neptune entirely over the course of just three days, and then back again three days later. Lassell, the beer man, had discovered a moon, and a big one too, one that would turn out to measure 1,674 miles across. That makes it the seventh largest moon in the solar system. Seventh largest anything doesn't sound terribly big, Mars is the seventh largest planet, after all, which also means that it's the second smallest. But there are only eight known planets in the solar system. Moons are a different matter. At last count, astronomers knew of 178 of them, or 183 if you count the five orbiting the dwarf planet Pluto. Either way, the key phrase here is, at last count because the number changes all the time. As recently as 1999, there were only 63 known moons. As recently as 1979, there were only 35. The moon census has always been like a human census, accurate only until it's not. The huge number of moons means a huge variety of moons, like a heavenly bag of marbles. 
There are pairs of moons moving in tandem. There are water moons and soot moons. There are smooth ones and cratered ones. There are white, black, orange, and yellow moons. There are moons with ethane lakes and ammonia rivers. Moons with great sparkly ice volcanoes. There is a moon that has been shattered to rubble and then reassembled itself. Shattered again and been rebuilt again. And there are moons that might, just might, be home to life. The solar system's moons have always seemed like the B team, the understudies, the little worlds that have neither the bulk to qualify as a planet, nor the gravitational muscle to fly free and orbit the sun on their own, rather than clinging to the skirts of their parent world. But the fact is, when all eight planets have been seen and explored and studied up close, it may well be the moons that hold the greatest surprises, the moons that hold the greatest promise, the moons that are home to the true cosmic magic. On a clear night, away from the lights of a city, the view of the night sky can be dazzling. A dark sky full of stars, so many it's impossible to count. The same could be said about the amount of websites on the internet, too many to count, which is why it's important to make your website stand out with Squarespace. Squarespace offers customizable designs so that you can easily tailor your website to fit your needs. With their drag-and-drop tools and modern templates, they make it easy to build a site that looks professionally designed, regardless of skill level. No coding required. Plus, you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial site today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code UNIVERSE to get 10% off your first purchase. The sun is constantly converting a star's worth of hydrogen to helium and energy. That's a lot of energy. The daily grind here on Earth could make you wish you had the energy of the sun. But when you can't stop to take a break, let Audible keep you going. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products of all different genres to choose from. Take Audible wherever you go by listening on your smartphone, computer, or tablet. Listen to books such as Failure is Not an Option by Gene Kranz, a key player in America's manned space program for three decades. Author Kranz recounts his time as flight director in NASA's mission control for both the Apollo 11 and Apollo 13 missions. Kranz recounts the struggles, the triumphs, and the teamwork that made the space program a success. As a special offer to my listeners, you can get a free 30-day trial today by signing up at audible.com universe. That's audible.com universe. Chapter 1. Earth. If the solar system is loaded with moons, it's clear that the riches were not distributed evenly, and it's the inner planets that were shortchanged. Mercury got nothing. Venus got nothing. Mars has two moons, Phobos and Deimos, but they barely qualify at all. 
irregular bits of space rubble just 14 and 8 miles across respectively, they're more captured asteroids than anything else. Our own Earth has just a single moon, but by a lot of measures, it's a honey. Yes, it's old, dead, and airless, but it's also huge. At 2,159 miles across, it's more than a quarter of the diameter of Earth, the largest moon-to-planet-size ratio in the solar system. In its youngest days, Earth didn't have a moon at all. But then, more than four billion years ago, the young planet was blindsided by a collision with a Mars-sized planetesimal careering through the inner solar system. The cosmic crack-up blasted out a cloud of debris which settled into orbit around Earth, first as a rough ring, then as a pair of embryonic moons, then as a single coherent moon in a very low orbit. Over time, the space between the Earth and the moon grew greater, finally settling out at 239,000 miles, which was the stablest gravitational arrangement for both worlds. There the moon has hung and spun across time, pulling the tides, lighting up the nights, and helping to ensure that Earth's 23-degree tilt, the inclination that gives us our seasons, does not change. The moon has no life of its own, but it's helped make life on Earth demonstrably better. Chapter 2, Jupiter. Out by Jupiter, things are very different and a lot busier. The largest planet in the solar system also has the biggest moon count, with no fewer than 67 satellites buzzing around it like bees circling a hive. A lot of the moons, admittedly, are rocky flotsam like Phobos and Deimos. The Jovian moon Leda, for example, is less than 10 miles across. The absolute runt of Jupiter's litter, discovered in 2010, measures just over a mile across. Known simply as S2010J1, it doesn't yet have a formal name and seems barely to deserve one. But there's moon news to be made around Jupiter all the same, and most of the breaking stories are coming from the four big worlds Galileo discovered 400 years ago, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Io, at 2,250 miles across, is the innermost and third largest of those four moons, and it's easily the most active. In 1979, when Voyager 1 was reconnoitering Jupiter, a project scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory saw an odd bulge on one of Io's horizons. At first, she thought it was a glitch in the image, but the bulge was there in picture after picture, growing and shrinking, perhaps, but never vanishing. It was also strangely translucent, allowing light from behind to stream through to Voyager's camera. What the feature appeared to be, actually the only thing it could be, was a volcano, and a huge one, reaching 160 miles into the sky. And that, the JPL scientist realized, made sense. Io orbits only a little farther from Jupiter than our moon does from Earth, but Jupiter is more than 10 times bigger than Earth. That means Io sits deep in its parent planet's gravity well, 
held in a tight gravitational fist that keeps it tidally locked, with the same hemisphere always facing Jupiter. But Io is subject to other gravitational forces too, mostly from its three big sister moons, which move in separate orbital lanes farther out. Each time one of them passes, it gives Io a gravitational pluck, which stretches and squeezes it. Over time, and at 4.5 billion years old, time is one thing Io has a lot of, this has heated up the interior of the moon like a wire hanger bent rapidly back and forth that becomes too hot to touch at the point of the bend. At last count, astronomers have detected up to 400 active volcanoes blasting into space all across Io's face. This leaves the moon covered with yellow-orange sulfur, which gives it a fiery appearance in telescopes that suits its fiery nature. The same kind of tidal flexing works a different kind of magic, possibly biological magic, on next-door neighbor Europa. The smallest of the Galileo moons, Europa measures just 1,945 miles across. Easily the brightest of the big Jovian moons, Europa has a surface covered in bright white water ice, shot through with cracks and jagged peaks that appear to be icebergs frozen in place. This suggests that the seemingly solid surface of Europa is little more than a shell, perhaps no more than 10 miles thick, with an ocean up to 100 miles deep beneath it. Rust-colored stains around the surface cracks suggest that the ocean is briny, since ordinary salt turns just that reddish color when exposed to the radiation of deep space. That in turn suggests something almost amniotic going on within Europa, with the waters of the warm, globe-girdling ocean pulsing around and around the moon as it's squeezed by gravitational flexing. Energy plus chemistry plus time may be all that's needed to cook up life, and if it is, Europa is perhaps the likeliest place to find it anywhere in the solar system. Sister moons Ganymede and Callisto have similar potential, but it's likely unrealized potential. At 3,300 miles across, Ganymede is actually larger than the planet Mercury, and at 2,976 miles, Callisto falls just short of that. Both moons are about 40% water, but the tidal forces aren't quite strong enough out where they fly to keep that water liquid. Still, if either moon could somehow be relocated closer to Jupiter or the Sun, which they can't, but still, they would qualify as two of the most complex and dynamic bodies in the solar system. Chapter 3, Saturn. Saturn has almost as big a moon population as Jupiter, with at least 62 satellites bobbing and dancing in and around the planet's complex network of rings. Those rings, of course, are made of millions upon millions of individual particles, each of which is itself sort of a micro-moon, though that's only in the sense that each cell that makes up your body is, in a way, its own independent organism. 
Saturn's true moons have a lot of influence over those particles. The icy moonlets Prometheus and Pandora, measuring just 62 and 56 miles across respectively, orbit Saturn on opposite sides of the planet's F-ring, gravitationally collecting stray bits that drift off of the F and grooming the edges that remain, keeping them sharp and well-defined. Of all of Saturn's 62 moons, however, only two are considered the truly big players. Enceladus, which measures 310 miles across, is a comparatively small world, but it's awfully hard to ignore. Its so-called albedo is the amount of light that strikes it that it in turn reflects back. In the case of Enceladus, that albedo is a mirror-perfect 100%. Earth's moon, which hovers like a searchlight in our own sky, has an albedo of just 12%. Like Europa, Enceladus owes its brilliance to a covering of water ice, and like Europa too, it undergoes a lot of tidal squeezing. The Cassini spacecraft, which has been orbiting Saturn since 2004, has detected 101 ice geysers erupting on Enceladus at any one time. So pronounced are these eruptions that Enceladus, which orbits within Saturn's F-ring, leaves a cloud of ice exhaust behind it. It's the appropriately named Titan, however, that's the true brute in the Saturnian system. Only slightly smaller than Ganymede, Titan has a bitterly cold surface where water would be frozen like steel, but where liquid ethane and methane pool in Great Lakes. Inside, Titan, like Callisto, is also about 40% water, and Cassini has collected persuasive evidence that that water, too, could be liquid. The softness or deformability of a world is measured by what's known as its love number, a nice term that's a less sentimental one than it sounds, referring not to some innate cuddliness, but to mathematician Augustus Edward Love, who developed the measure. A completely solid world would have a love number of zero. A completely liquid one would be 1.5. Titan comes in at about 0.6, which is awfully soft and presumably very liquid. Carbon-based life could never get started on Titan's surface, but inside its watery incubator, the situation could be very different. Chapter 4, Uranus The moons of Uranus are fewer, with the count holding at 27 for now, and they're a bit less remarkable. Miranda, about 292 miles across, is perhaps the strangest of the Uranian satellites. It has a mishmash surface in which all manner of incompatible terrains bump up against one another flat plains in the middle of mountain ranges, rills or canyons suddenly stopping and then resuming on the other side of a smooth divide. It's as if the moon had shattered and then been sloppily slapped back together, which is what astronomers believe happened as tidal forces repeatedly broke it apart and gravitational forces repeatedly reassembled it. 
That has given rise to some remarkable features, including one great gash in the ground 12 times deeper than the Grand Canyon. With Miranda's extremely weak gravity, a rock dropped from the edge of the canyon would take 10 minutes to reach the bottom. Chapter 5, Neptune. Neptune's 14 moons are mostly small and irregular, a few dozen to a couple hundred miles across. But here, too, there are a couple of standouts. Proteus, which orbits just 73,000 miles above the Neptunian cloud tops, is a living exercise in how worlds are made. Like all of the smallest moons, it's irregularly shaped, but it's dense enough and at 257 miles across, large enough that it's right at the precipice of having sufficient mass and thus sufficient gravity to collapse down into a sphere. Add a relative spoonful of matter to Proteus and it would shape up into a proper member of the Round World Club. But it's Triton, William Lassell's great find, that is Neptune's most important ward. At nearly 1,700 miles across, it's a substantial moon. More important, it holds the title of coldest place in the solar system, with surface temperatures plunging to about 400 below zero. The few grudging calories of warmth that Triton does get from the sun, however, have a significant effect. What passes for seasonal heating on Triton introduces just enough energy into the interior to cause frosty, sooty volcanoes to erupt as high as five miles into the sky, leaving large, dark stains on the ground. The eruptions have been going on for as long as Triton has been orbiting Neptune, but they can't last forever, and neither can Triton itself. Neptune rotates counterclockwise, like most worlds do, but Triton orbits clockwise, a bad choice for a world that wants to live. A slow gravitational war has been playing out between the planet and the moon for billions of years, and it's the moon, which is much smaller, that is doomed to lose. In a few billion years or more, nobody can say how many, Triton will enter a gravitational death spiral, either crashing into Neptune or being torn apart in space before it ever completes its fall. If Triton meets that second end, there will at least be some consolation, as the material that once made up the moon spreads around Neptune in a system of gaudy rings that could rival Saturn's. The other 177 known moons are not on the same mortal clock as Triton is. They could well live as long as the solar system itself does. That doesn't mean much for rocks like Mars's Phobos and Deimos, or for big cold worlds like Jupiter's Callisto and Ganymede, but for warm watery Europa, for frost-spouting Enceladus, for big elastic Titan, life to our way of seeing things is the highest accomplishment of any world. That view may be partly human vanity, 
but given the staggering complexity of biology, it's at least partly true, too. Human beings have long despaired of finding living company on the other seven planets in our solar system. But the moons, the worlds that were so often the afterthoughts, may be richer and livelier places than we ever dared hope. I'm Jeffrey Kluger. Follow me on Twitter at Jeffrey Kluger. This concludes Season 1 of Time Magazine's podcast, It's Your Universe, produced by Panoply.